0: Hi, everyone. It's Joachim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today, I'm talking with Vladimir Funtikov, the co-founder and CEO of Creative Mobile from Talon, Estonia. Vlad and his team were one of the earliest mobile teams to strike it big on Android back in the day. The team started scaling things up quickly, and through their roller coaster ride, Vlad has learned a lot about company building. We'll now hear more from Vlad himself. But first, here's a few words from our sponsors. We all know that developing a great game is one thing, but developing a great game's business can be something else entirely. That's why some of the top game developers in the industry use Ironsource's Game Growth platform, which takes care of both sides of the business, helping you monetize and to fuel your user acquisition. I for one wish we were using these guys in the early days of Next Games. You might also have heard of their level up podcast and a medium blog. In terms of gaming content, this blog is up there with the best, featuring game industry experts. Talking all things game design, development, and growth. See for yourself by searching for Iron Source Level Up on Medium or Spotify. Hey, game developer! Are you looking for great new authentic video creatives? Try something totally new with influencer generated content IGC by Opera Event. Influencers and actors will make specific creative content for your games. An opera event will deliver you high quality video ads that highlight the best parts of your game. Get a free video with a purchase of four or more videos. Remember to say that elite game developers sent you to claim your free video. Go to getigc.com. To see some examples and get more information, that's getigc.com. Hi, Vlad. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure. Sure sure thing. So I think I mentioned to you already that when I first, like the first time I heard about your company was 2011 when I was at Supercell. And Ilka Paanonen showed me, hey, this is like a really cool drag racing game check it out these guys are from Estonia and they they definitely know what they're doing and and all that kind of stuff and then I don't think I really like got any kind of like knowledge about your company since recently during this year so it's really cool to kind of like hear the whole story of what has happened in the 10 years of creative mobile so I want to get kick this off with the question of like how did you? Make your way into gaming and to eventually found creative mobile?
1: I would say in a very non linear fashion, which okay. I think is the case for almost anyone in, in my industry, in my um, country, or Eastern Europe in general, because there was no easy path into gaming uh, when I was a kid or even a student. I think I started making content for games around 98 or 99 and ultimately settled on building maps for Counter-Strike and Counter-Strike Source, which were by far, I think, the most popular games at the time. It was just a hobby, but um, I'm really proud that one of my maps is still being played today. I think it's really awesome. I just saw a guy post some screenshots of my map on Twitter a few months ago, and that was really exciting because it's been so many years, it's been almost 20 years since I made that map. It's not the best map i made, but still it's been played somewhere. And I think that's when I of got a taste of what it's like to build things people enjoy, which really excites me. It's an amazing feeling. But then there was no career opportunity in gaming, even remotely, um, in in my country back then. So uh, I went on to study computer science and almost accidentally got a job at a post-production company working on mobile games, which is kind of random. And I didn't really aim to get a job in gaming back then, but it just happened. And then um, I met my co-founders, my future co-founders of Creative Mobile there. And the company went out of business a year and a half later. So we all lost our jobs in an Mm -hmm. instant and decided to start our own studio. So that that was like, was that Java Games back then? Yes. Java, Symbian. I worked on Java Games. And then we briefly got a glimpse of Android at the very end of Mm -hmm. my time there. I think it was 2008, 2009. And that was a small project. I think I was a solo developer on that project back then because they were cutting costs and the team was reduced and I was doing a solo and I was like, Hey, this is a really interesting platform. It's kind of like iOS, but not quite. And the phones mm-hmm. are much cheaper. It's interesting if it can take off at some point. And ultimately okay. we decided to develop for Android because of that, because we kind of saw an opportunity there and um, figure out that, as a group of you know, programmers with no business experience, we don't really stand a chance in the iOS world. But if this thing takes off, we might have some you know, first-mover advantage of sorts. And that's mm-hmm. how Creative Mobile came to be. For me personally,
0: I think like the whole fascination about mobile games is that when those platforms like Java, early mobile games, like in 2003, 2004, started emerging, it felt like, hey, this is... You know, one person can yet again develop a game product and ship it out versus like PC was already like huge uh, production teams of hundreds of people. But you had this gateway of actually like, like more simplistic, less risky <laughs> route maybe even as an attractive thing to get into gaming, like what mobile was then. Do you have any similar feelings?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was super exciting because... I was introduced to games as a kid in um, the 90s and um, in the late 90s when i was a teenager the industry felt really mature there were big games being developed there was no way to get into it unless you grew up in one of those demographics where there were game development hubs and i wasn't in one so uh when mobile came around especially when smartphones came around and then the app store launched it turned my world upside down and we realized that okay we. We cannot quite build AAA mobile games yet, but we don't have to because we can convey this joy of play through simple methods, simple tools, simpler graphics. But we can still, you know, trigger the same emotions and we can talk to the players and we can go out there and directly distribute to the players and collect the feedback. And that was the most amazing feeling for us. Yeah.
0: Hey, before we go into the journey of creating mobile, can you introduce the
1: company, what it's like? What is it today? It's 130 people. We've been around for 10 years. We now have two principal locations here in Tallinn and Estonia and St. Petersburg, Russia, which is not far away from where I am right now, but uh, recently it's been difficult to get to because of the obvious reasons. Uh, We have three founders. We're still involved in day-to-day operation, day in, day out. And um, yeah, we just celebrated 10 years this summer. Congrats. Thank you. If you look at the early days of the company uh, and
0: going from there, you know, that, that stage when when I was looking at your game at Supercell, what was the culture like back then? And what did you do right and what went wrong there?
1: I think we nailed the business model before uh, most people figured it out. And I think what you said about Ilka Panen and showing drag racing to the team. In 2011. I think that's a huge testament to how early we started exploiting the advantages of the platform for re-play gaming because Supercell was widely known as one of the benchmark studios and one of the early movers and one of the best examples of how we can build a studio in this environment. And uh, we got a bunch of things right because we we're really focused. We chose Android as early as 2009. We chose to distribute free games at the time where when most people thought that 0.99 was the perfect business model. And we had the stories about, you know, overnight millionaire, someone made an app, priced it at $1, 1 million copies sold. Wonderful. Ending to a wonderful two-week development journey. And of course, we got excited about that, but we ultimately figured that doesn't quite work on Android. So we had to move to ad supported monetization and then add it in the purchases almost the moment they became available, invested a lot into boosting organic discovery because UA was not really a a thing back then. And I think we ticked a lot of the boxes that uh, have become common knowledge by now, but 10 years ago, wasn't that obvious that you have to develop games as a service, for example. And in a way, I think most of the industry back then was in agreement that Android was not going to be a gaming platform in the near future. And we kind of bet against the market there when we placed our bets on it. And most people dismissed early Android wins as insignificant. I think we reached like 100 million downloads before the gaming press even started to write about Android games as something that's worth considering as, as a business. So we enjoyed a few years of great commercial success by the virtue of being uh, early movers in the space, winning awards, um, having great profitability. But um, as it often happens, we kind of suffer from this tunnel vision effect when we were really focused on the product and uh, were really obsessed with the games, but completely missed the boat when uh, it was time to think about our culture, how we hire people, what kind of people are we, what kind of company are we, how we work as a team, and all those things. And um, the trap we fell into was that as founders, we really thought that we are nice guys. We are building something amazing. We're on the very edge of technology. We are 100% honest with everyone at the company. We're fully transparent. We are in it to win it. And we kind of felt that this vision and this attitude will shape the company organically because that's what we do. That's who we are. And the, the organization will take the shape of the founders culture. But that wasn't the case. And frankly, that's not how it works. And in reality, we saw so a growing divide between the management and the employees. Um, we had, at some point, completely different agendas. Um, we made some hiring errors. Um, eventually, saw the best people leaving because they noticed that the average quality of the team was declining, that the culture was n- not amazing. And it kind of became an accelerated trend that hit us hard at some point. And we actually almost went out of business. A few years after being like enjoying an eighty percent profitability margin, which is amazing, but it's even more amazing how quickly you can almost undo everything if you don't pay attention to those fundamental things.
0: Was it like uh, thinking about this kind of intentional culture, or was it more or less you were betting on things, kind of like rolling on on their own uh, as? as you start building games as their success as people people come in was it more like okay we're we're going to be hands off of the culture we already did the work there and then you just let it go like how how do you how do you kind of like reflect those moments of indecisiveness indecision like what was that period like
1: frankly i didn't even think about culture back then it was moving so fast We started the company in 2010. We really suffered badly for the first year or year and a half. And then suddenly we're making some money enough to buy some food, put it on the table and carry on. And then suddenly we're making lots of money. And then the market was exploding. Android was exploding. We moved to iOS, uh, grew our business significantly, and we were. Elbows deep in, in the products. Mm. We were on this fast moving train. We just didn't have time to think about long-term. And um, we kind of thought that, Hey, we're going to figure it out on the go. Now is, is the time to build great games because the market is wide open. So let's build more games. Let's build better games. Let's hire more people so we can build more and better games. Mm-hmm. And we never really pause to think about the foundational values or the HR processes and stuff like that, because it always sounded boring corporate and something like what big companies do. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was completely wrong then because it's something that everyone should do. It's, It's a relationship. The same principles apply in in your family, at home, at work. You're building and maintaining relationships with people. It's hard work, and size only makes it more complicated. But it should be done since day one. So we were not conscious about it, and we paid the price ultimately. Did you
0: back then, when you were developing your own skills as a leader, did you was there kind of like certain steps that you recall where you changed how you approached? your leadership, and did you have mentors helping you
1: there? What was those moments like? Yes. Um, I vividly remember one moment uh, when we uh, went from being massively profitable to losing lots of cash really quickly. And suddenly we had like eight months of runway ahead of us. That was a quick turnaround. It happened within two months. Went from being super, super profitable to... Facing death as an organization, we had to lay off people for the first time mm. and um i don't think most people realize what's um what's it like for a founder to lay off people I think that the, the, this perception that bosses lay off people because they're unhappy with the employees and they blame the employees and you know you're fired you've done a bad job, you should go, but it was not like that for. For us, at least not for me. I was severely depressed. I was losing lots of sleep and I was really, really unhappy with myself. There was a lot of self loathing It was one of the darkest moments in my entire life, as far as I can tell. Ironically, we were kind of riding on, on this wave of national fame at the time because the media caught up with our success and we were named startup of the year. And uh, I was named the wealthiest person under thirty in my country, which is hilarious because it's such a small place. But so it's not a big feat to accomplish. But still, uh, we were over the media, and at the same time, I was about to tell people that I failed them because ultimately it was not their fault that we hired them and put them on this project. It was our fault, and by extension, my fault as the CEO. And I was thinking about all the people who moved to Estonia to work at CM, and they uh, placed their trust with us, and um, they invested their time, uh, put their heart and soul into this project, and um, we had to shut it down and let them go. And that wasn't easy. And this disconnect between the ex- external picture of a super successful company and a successful uh, wonder kid CEO mm-hmm. and what was actually happening was maddening because I couldn't talk to anyone about this. There was literally not, not a single person around me who listened to this because everyone thought things are great. And that was really, really hard. and and. I think, traumatizing. And it really made me think long and hard about my role, my career, who do I want to be? Ultimately, a software developer who made a game for 300, 400 million people, an entrepreneur who made a nice exit uh, while it was still possible or um, something else. And um, instinctively, I felt that I really wanted to learn because I think I'm curious by nature, and I was wondering how could we mess up so badly and go from being super successful to me being extremely depressed and extremely unhappy and all this amount of self-loathing and this, this dissatisfaction with myself. So I was really curious about the mechanics of this. As you mentioned, I was fortunate to briefly meet ilka Pananen um, at, at around the same time. Uh, when uh, Supercell, I believe, was largely unknown. And then I saw their revenue explode and studio become a benchmark for culture and how you can build an environment where great games are made with uh, relatively small teams. But uh, even though it made a lasting impression on me, I was way too shy and introverted and kind of ashamed of what I have done with my studio to explicitly ask a figure of that caliber to... Be my mentor or help me out which is something i sincerely regret not just with regards to ilka but with uh, some other amazing people i was fortunate to meet during that period and later but i deal with something what shy introverts do i turn to books and uh, i uh, re- i started reading leadership books and war stories like the amazing hard thing about hard things by ben horowitz uh some of the more academic leadership books like uh, High Performance Management or High Output Management by uh, Andy Grove, which I started reading really early and it didn't make any sense to me. And then I made some mistakes and made some more mistakes and I came back to this book and I was like, wow, this guy literally describes everything I've done (laughs) in exactly the same terms. So I went back to the same books and I uh, ultimately started figuring out what, what, what I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do in this role. Have you figured out like how or have you thought about this? Like how
0: founders who who are going into the to the startup world building a company, how could they preemptively actually be educated regarding these kind of things that will come down the line? Have you ever thought of that?
1: Yes, I think mentorship is is a great tool. But then again, you need to understand the dangers to mm-hmm. prepare yourself for the dangers. So I was I was way too ignorant back then. Uh, my vision was obscured by this fast-moving industry and this um, perception of success. Mm. So I didn't fully realize that um, I need to be paranoid all the time. Now I openly openly say, "Hey, I'm paranoid. That's basically my job description. That's what I'm supposed to be." Mm. Uh, and uh, whenever the waters are calm and the company is profitable and it's so nice and everything is happy. That's when I'm in my most paranoid state because somewhere in the shadows, the danger is lurking. But uh, we joke that we went through a very expensive MBA course at, at CM. <laughs> we, we paid way too much money for the luxury of being educated about the, the perils of leadership and management. So I don't think there's any civil ability. You have to be clever and understand that you're capacity and your talent when they get you this far and you should be permanent and you should seek advice from competent people and you should listen to people who criticize you because sometimes they are into something yeah and it's even like this
0: kind of saying that hey these are big company problems it's not my like why would my startup have these problems but it's actually it happens earlier than you think
1: <laughs> really yeah i've been telling people culture starts with day one with a team of one person, it's never too early to think about HR and how you hire. Mm. And the value you send, it's never too early to write a company handbook. It can be a small handbook. It could be a one-pager, a manifesto which says, hey, we are this and we do that by these principles. Mm. It doesn't take that much effort. And you can always amend it and change it as you go and evolve as an organization, but you have to declare some principles. Otherwise, these principles develop organically and maybe you're fortunate and you grow into an amazing culture. But this is kind of like a child growing into an amazing, accomplished, cultured, intelligent individual, it can happen. But it's way more likely if there are some frameworks that guide you somehow, some kind of vector that you can follow.
0: Can you describe the evolution of creative Mobile's company culture and where it, like, from those days of, you know, the bad moments where you had layoffs to, like, what did it take
1: to get to, to where you guys are right now? I think the most significant step for us was elevating our HR guy, the head of HR at CM, to a director's position, which is on the same level as the founders. And in terms of actual executive power, that wasn't a big step up. But psychologically, uh, for us, that meant a lot because we had always had a company guided by the three original founders were also the shareholders and controlled 100% and then there was another person who got hired at some point now sit not on the same level we basically sent the message to ourselves and the rest of the company that hey this is just as important if not more important than product and finance and anything else and from then on we decided among ourselves that hr is going to be the number one priority because we are now in for the long haul we are no longer rushing to put new games out to the market the most value of this company will probably be created five years from now 10 years from now when the people that we hire based on the principles that we acquire today will go on to develop into something else and discover something and then build something and then we'll be able to scale that something and this is the creative model of the future, and this is where most value will be created. So we should be working on those principles now, and we should be working on hiring or getting ready to hire these people now. Mm. And that was a fundamental paradigm change for us because we kind of went from building the company from the upside down to a completely different approach where we create an environment, we wait for the environment to attract the right people, and then we really gently work with these people, suppress our egos, give it time and try to create this kind of open and transparent culture where people make mistakes and we do not criticize for honest mistakes. We sometimes choose the wrong things to focus on and we burn through lots of cash, but we acknowledge that this is all a building block, which will ultimately lead to a culture of openness and autonomy and trust and excellence, which will... Come at some point an unfair advantage compared to the kind of companies that we used to be five years ago, seven years ago.
0: It's an excellent point. So if you start a company from that angle of, hey, this is actually going to take 10 years to get anywhere, then you can build those kind of safety nets, those structures, those pillars for the company. Is that do you think that the whole long-term like vision and long-term building of a company is what you guys like contribute that's the biggest thing that that helped you to get where you, where you are right definitely.
1: now definitely yeah. we we stopped and thought about it at some point and i think we even have had a conversation about that among the founders and we explicitly said that hey we are no longer riding a rocket the market is mature we used to be ahead of the market now we are objectively behind the market But Mm -hmm. we still have some resources, we still have some advantages and we have the energy and the willpower to persevere, but we should be doing something different. We should be focusing on building the next game and then hiring people to build the next game. We should be focusing on something that's going to take many years to accomplish and we should be ready to suffer for many years and not get paid for many years and endure mockery and not demonstrate growth for many years if that's what it takes. Because there is no other way. We should either do this this way or quit right now. And we didn't want to quit. Sure.
0: And then when it comes like you guys, the founders, are aligned with this, then you have employees who joined to create awesome games. How do you you keep your employees motivated and encourage their creativity?
1: What's been your approach there? We try to give freedom as much as possible. We give freedom by default. We formulated values uh, that are fundamental to the company, and these values are excellence, openness, and trust. And these are the key pillars. We uh, we have a manifesto and the constitution, and the constitution is basically a set of phrases that define who we are um, and how we operate. And uh, it includes stuff like uh, we gain freedom when we accept ownership and we try to live by these principles if you want to build something go ahead and build it you need to understand that now this is your yard and if anything happens in your yard you own the consequences if a gigantic stone falls out of the sky into your yard you didn't plan for this you didn't sign up for this but this is your yard now Hmm. that being said You have complete freedom to do whatever you like, as long as you can take responsibility for it. If you cannot take full responsibility for it, find someone you can share the responsibility with. Let me help you. Let me assist you with this. Let me give you more leverage here. What do you need? Power, authority, influence. We can provide that. Let's find a way to give you the most freedom you can realistically carry on shoulders. We also make a point of not punishing honest mistakes. Another line in our constitution says, we acknowledge... Anyone's right to an honest mistake. And this is really important because this is one of the tools for building an, a safe environment, which is extremely complicated. And it's really difficult to maintain it because there are so many dangers. And there are so many, when you have 100 people and, and more, you have all these conflicting motivations and you have all these ambitious people trying to excel. It's uh, really difficult to strike the right balance between. A motivating, engaging culture that brings the best out of people and has this healthy level of competition, but at the same, it's safe. At the same time, it's safe, so they can uh, honestly, openly admit their mistakes and not feel like they are giving ground to someone else. It's really complicated, but we've been we've been going over our values for a long time before we committed to them. I think it took us a year and a half before we uh, published the handbook and the constitution and the manifesto. Um, and uh, we can see it working. Genuinely, I can see that the people we hire are more aligned on values. We spend a lot of time talking about that. And then when they come into the organization, they, uh, they mainly uh, see confirmation of these principles rather than conflicts or anything like that. So long story short, we're trying to build a system where people can do literally anything they like as long as they adhere to a number of principles that we can see in the fundamental pillars of our DNA. That point that when
0: when you create this kind of like like you were talking about this backyard for the the, the game developers in their teams and giving that freedom, how do you how do you approach risk taking inside the company? Because you could place big bets you know this kind of like hey this is going to require 40 people to build this game it's going to require like you know millions of investments up front and we won't know if it works until 12 months do you as the management team kind of like set guidelines there for game related decision making regarding the scope and stuff like that cuz i think that's really fascinating at the startup level like how many you know shots on goal do you actually get as a team before it's sort of like hey now we call it quits
1: there are calls that producers can make there are calls that only i can make when it comes to strategic decisions like starting a new game and putting more than three people on it i have veto rights because ultimately i'm responsible for the overall portfolio Mm -hmm. and it's my job to keep the games aligned within some overarching strategy like we're doing racing or we're doing casual or we're doing hyper casual or we're investing into vr because i believe that vr will be interesting three years five years from now and i'm ready to accept responsibility for it Mm. Uh, for big decisions we typically want to get experts involved and uh, gain some support from all the stakeholders not just the directors of the company but the key producers and game designers, because ultimately if this game becomes a focal point of the company, we want everyone to be on the same page and understand that, Hey, I was involved in the decision-making process. Uh, I signed up for this. I need to support this because it's also my baby, even if I'm on a different team right now for the time being, Uh, for this, we have a process, which is um, kind of a green light committee. We call it brain trust. We borrowed it from Pixar. It's a meeting where we, we, Approach a problem that is not, that is difficult to solve through the standard procedure and requires lots of different angles and potential support. Building a new game is one example. And uh, we would summon some of the directors, some of the producers, some of the experts could be UA people, could be game designers, could be artists, depending on the scope of the problem and the representatives of the team or any group that are in favor of building this game or this technology will present and then we just exchange ideas, ask hard questions and in the end we kind of come to a shared conclusion if this is a clear yes, clear no, or something in between and then I resolve the in-between moments. Um, It can be difficult. Last year we decided we will not build a sequel to our flagship game. That game had been growing year over year for several years in a row and this year it's also going to set a new revenue record but it it's also an old design and it's got some fundamental flaws in it that we cannot really fix when there is an existing user, user base. And we have people who have spent lots and lots of money in the game. We can just change it overnight and because, because we want better monetization better retention or better visuals or whatever. So, uh, the idea of a sequel uh, was always in the air and there were so many people who were so ready to get on it and finally fix all the flaws. And correct all the mistakes and build a better economy and better engine, better graphics, better backend. We had the concept in the works for two years. And then we had the team present at the brain trust meeting. And in the end, everyone agreed we're not going to do it because we have things that are more investable at the moment. That game is just too big. It's going to take a year or a year and a half before we even begin to understand if we are hitting the mark. And it's just too much risk for us. And we can do other games in less time uh, with potentially bigger markets being targeted and much more control over where the game is heading.
0: Do you think that kind of system of figuring out as a group what are the options, what, what are the risks involved, is that something that even that early stage startup should think about? I think
1: so. I think inclusivity beats vertical decision-making in this industry. I think the fundamental reason for that is, uh, that it's really hard to define what a great game is and how to build a great game. Unlike some other industries where you basically have a set of procedures and you want everyone to follow these procedures. And then the most experienced guy who knows, uh, the technology of the market deeper than anyone else, he can call the shots and then everyone gets to execute. In gaming, I still feel like a child sometimes. I've been around for 10 years as a CEO. I've been around as a professional for maybe 15 years, which is a, which is almost half of my entire life. So I've seen things, but uh, it's incredibly hard for me to define how doing X and Y and Z will take us to a great game with, um, which triggers amazing emotions in people. That's one of the fundamental challenges here. That's why I want everyone to be on the same page. I want people to feel really... Appreciated and involved so that they can break these little sparks of magic here and there, and we can at least have a hope of all these pieces aligning into something that's greater than the sum of the components. And of course, we are really conscious about the metrics, and mm-hmm. we spend a lot of time educating even non executives and non game designers about what LTV is and how marketing works. And why IPMs are important and why creative production is so important for a product and how LTV and IPM and CPM will play together. All those really complex things for, let's say, a junior employee to to grasp when they uh, join a gaming company as, let's say, an artist. But we want everyone to be as engaged as possible and have a wide understanding of how all those uh, data points combine with the creative side of game making to produce something that's enjoyable but at the same time not completely random but uh, there are still a lot of small things in there that you cannot really define in a game design document that you cannot really design define in in uh, in a handbook even so we always try to explain in great detail why are we doing this what kind of emotions are we trying to trigger and then give people as much of an as possible to go their own ways about creating those things and these emotions. That's really great. Uh, it's also really hard and really expensive. And it it, it, it's taken us years of working on their own things to yeah. gain a shared understanding of how the system can work. Yeah. I find
0: it so hard, like from my my career in startups, was like to actually stop what you're doing and think and discuss and weigh the options. I think startups are about like having that velocity. Like you guys saw that Android was picking up like crazy. <laughs> and at that stage, it's so hard to take a, you know, a few days to to actually just talk about what's going on. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, going into your leadership skills, I, I wanted to ask you this question about
1: like how would you define a great leader? I think ownership is one. World that sits above all the rest. You could say that leaders empower people, leaders care about their people, but ultimately, I think it's ownership that sets great leaders apart. And ownership means that whatever happens on the on your watch, you own it. Whether it's your fault, someone else's fault, a random occurrence, some global event, doesn't matter. Uh, it's not important f- at the time. You can go back to the reasons layer. You can dissect the events and learn from it. But the instinctive reaction of a great leader is to own the situation mm. um, and manage it in a way that that's um, aligned with the goals of the organization.
0: I think what you said about like going and, and talking about, hey, VR is the next opportunity and we're going to follow this one. And then you said that if it doesn't work, it's my responsibility. Like your example there really like hit the nail of pointing out that you are owning this choice or the, the decision, and it's
1: your responsibility to follow through. Same with, um, with the hires, for example. And when we realize that someone is not a great fit after all, and someone is not performing, we always think about it as... A failure of the organization, never a failure of the person. Mm. And I really believe in it. And I've I've repeated it so many times over the last few years that we should, I mean informally we could be frustrated, but we should always understand that it was us who hired the person, it was us who onboarded this person. Uh, it was us who worked with this person, gave them feedback. It was me who set up the organization in the way that enabled this to happen. I hired the HR people. I uh, onboarded the HR people. So ultimately, it all comes down to me. And then maybe at the very end of the chain of the events, there was something that was outside of our control. Maybe something happened in their personal life and made them unhappy and they are distracted and we can fix it. But this is a minor thing. 99% we own the chain of events. We own the consequences. So this is the organization's fault. So we should always part ways with loss of respect and sympathy and do our best to ensure that the leaving employee is happy and they can continue on a great career path, get the best they deserve, never feel sour about it, and uh, uh, take another look inside ourselves and see if we messed up somewhere.
0: Yeah, good points.
1: How do you construct a safe
0: environment at Creative Mobile for everyone to feel safe to talk about problems?
1: I like the saying uh, simple but not easy. I think it's really simple on the surface. You communicate a lot. Um, you admit that people make mistakes. You try not to be intimidating. Uh, you try to be supportive, empathize with people. I have been told that I, I empathize with people a lot more than I used to. People say I used to be intimidating, which I never quite came to term with because I always thought I was a nice dude. But in the end, it's not about who you think you are hmm. and more about what you actually do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we often often repeat a mantra that if someone thinks there is a problem there is a problem it might not be the same problem being described but something is off otherwise they would not be upset and again I think it's kind of like in a relationship with your partner if they are upset and you think they are in the wrong and there is no reason to be upset and they are misinterpreting things it doesn't matter it could be uh, debugged and investigated a month from now when it's no longer an an issue just for the sake of learning from it and seeing what actually went wrong. But telling your partner that he or she is wrong and shouldn't be upset is not the best cure. There is a reason. And uh, if there is some kind of discontent, something needs to be done about it. And then it's just a question of doing the same thing all over again and sticking to these principles and um, gradually building trust. And then you have an open safe environment whether it's again your family or your business patience is key
0: yeah and taking those time off to to discuss what like as a leader
1: what gets you excited i think what gets me most excited is seeing people grow and flourish and exceed expectations that's incredibly satisfying because we always try to get the best people on board and we have high expectations and we have high standards, but, um, seeing that the result is once again, greater than the sound of the components and, uh, people are happy and they discover themselves and new roles and develop and surprise themselves in this environment. That's, that's the best feeling. Mm. How do you deal with stress then? I think that when it comes to stress prevention is the best treatment. And again, it sounds simple it's not that easy to execute and practice but i try not to stress out too much the way i look at it whatever happens to me is just my perception of what actually happened i'm really conscious about my uh, mental health and how i respond to external events i try to emphasize the good things i celebrate a lot i'm not ashamed of celebrating the same thing all over again they say there's a contract i'm working on i celebrate when the opportunity appears on the horizon I celebrate when we have an agreement i celebrate when we sign the papers i celebrate when we uh, get to work i really emphasize the positive sides and uh, when something negative happens i uh, ask myself will this matter in 10 years and a lot of the time the question sounds odd because we're thinking about really threatening things that i should be focused on right now but i still Try to take a step back and think about the long-term consequences. And oftentimes I find that it's really hard to figure out what the long-term consequences would be in the sense that they will not necessarily be negative. Let's mm-hmm. say the market turns really bad and we can make a series of mistakes and something and un- un- think of what happens and we go out of business. It's the worst thing. It's a disaster, but will this derail my career and destroy me personally in a way that 10 years later I'll be still regretting this? I don't think so. There is a good chance that I'll learn from this, get back on my feet, find these people again, uh, find more great people we will do something great together by then. So in in the longer term, it's really not that obvious when when something negative happens that it's going to have a long-lasting negative effect. Sometimes it's going to have an amazing positive effect as well. So we shouldn't stress out too much about negative effects. We We should take a balanced look at what's happening, dissect the problem perform to our best ability to fix it and move on i also think that lying is detrimental to mental health i think that not lying is a very important tool that is underappreciated whenever you lie you borrow and you need to repay this debt at some point or you hope that it expires and everyone forgets and this in itself is very stressful i never lie and uh, i've been living by this principle for many, many years before I became a manager or even an adult. And uh, it's one of the best decisions I made, honestly. It's uh, it's much easier to admit mistakes and feel bad for a day than to live in this depth for months and years. I know I've been answering the question for a long time. Sorry about that. But this I think this is really, 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 really important Yes, for anyone in the leadership position because we're We have these external expectations of being invincible. I'm the boss. I'm running an organization that's generated tens of millions in revenue and hires, employs 100 plus people. And it's, you know, it's, it's a major achievement. There are great expectations of anyone even trying to be in charge here. But I am not invincible. And I openly admit I am not. I think I'm really, really, really tough mentally by now. But when I feel down, I just tell people around me that, I feel down. I will go home and tell my wife that I'm sorry. I'm I'm not in the best shape. I've I feel exhausted. It's been something is off. I we can't. I can I don't feel like going to this uh, social event. I'm really sorry about that. That's my fault. I own it. But I need some time to recover, and she would understand because she doesn't want to go out with me when I'm not in the best condition. She's smart. She knows that when I say that, the best course of action is to just take some time off take the foot off the pedal, because then maybe a day later, an hour later, maybe 10 minutes later, I'll be in my best shape again. And the same applies to managers. When uh, I I don't feel like I'm up for the job, I would say, let's cancel the meetings. Can we do this again? Is this critical? And uh, I do not come up with bullshit excuses like, oh, something came up or... Mm. Uh, there's a schedule conflict. I just say, "Hey, I'm not feeling great," um, mm. and they, and yes, this is a sign of weakness. But they are smart, and they actually appreciate that because nobody wants to sit in a meeting with the CEO who is distraught, not engaged, upset, yeah, irritated. And long term, they appreciate its openness, and they they feel safe because they feel that if the CEO can say that he's not in the best condition right now, and he can be vulnerable, that means that I can be vulnerable. Mm. When I'm feeling down, I have the same moral right to say, hey, I need some time off. It's kind of like in sports, you can bit be at the top physical shape 100% of the time. Sometimes you have to say, hey, coach, I'm not feeling up to it. I need a day of rest. Mm. And a good coach would feel this and give you that rest. So it's important to find this mutual understanding that we are not invincible. We can be really, really strong. We could be some of the best warriors and we could summon incredible strength mentally when we need it. But we also need to take time off to recharge the batteries before they run dry and we just freeze in, in our place and stay paralyzed. I, I think the
0: managing your own expectations is something that, well, I, I worked a lot on that in the recent years to to kind of like create more healthy expectations of long-term, like, you know, what you were talking about that, like, hey, this, this disaster that just now happened won't, how much will it matter in a year's time? But then where I still have problems is like other people around me who are working maybe on the same in the same team, on the same same product, whatnot, they might have their own expectations and then I want to meet their expectations as well. So it's there's a lot of moving parts there. What what do you think about like how do you how do you kind of like resolve the the expectations of the group versus your own?
1: I don't think there's any silver bullet here. It's so yeah. it's so difficult. Communication is key, of course. Talking to people a lot about their expectations versus your yeah. expectations versus what's realistic, and trying to better understand what drives them and what mm-hmm. drives you, and uh, how this can be aligned. Open communication is the best. It's so difficult to establish, but it's mm-hmm. worth it. Also, I think it's really important to dig deep into your own motivation. At least for me, that's been extremely useful. Thinking hard about how, to, to what extent my motivation is being shaped by external pressure and what's the actual intrinsic personal motivation that really drives me. I mean, I don't get to talk about it so often, which is a shame. And I, I don't think most people get to talk about their motivation yeah, um, a lot because there is this external perception of what drives people in different roles and positions. For example, for a, for an entrepreneur, if you ask anyone from, from the outside, it's perfectly clear what the, what an entrepreneur's motivation is. Get rich, right? You start a company, you exit yeah. at the peak, you make a lot of money, that's what you sure. do as an entrepreneur. But honestly, as an entrepreneur, that was never my priority because frankly, I never expected to make a lot of money working on video games.
0: Yeah.
1: So I, if that was my goal, To get rich fast, I would have gotten into a different industry 10, 12, 15 years ago. I started the company because I wanted to build stuff. And then at some point, I realized that I really want to get good at it, uh, running a company, hopefully be one of the best. And this is different and often contradictory to the financial goal because to make the most money, you need to exit at the peak. But to get actually good at running a company, you need to grind through the low points and persevere at a time when your valuation is maybe a fraction of what it could be. So there's a conflict with, between the external expectation of what a great entrepreneur does or what a great entrepreneur is, and the internal motivation, this drive to get really good at your job, achieve a new level of mastery. And then there are all the other layers, like the social mission of the company, which I really care about, taking care of the shareholders, making sure they're happy, making sure the employees are happy and they uh, they win by joining the company, they get what they were promised and they continue to have a great career. And all this complexity, complexity is really difficult to dissect. And frankly, most people are interested in listening to it. Mm. But it's really important to understand your own motivation and be, be honest about it and, and try to find the balance between your own desires and what the environment, the society, your partner, your colleagues expect from you. And I think this applies not only to business. I think this applies to a lot of areas in our life where we are ashamed of thinking about our motivation because there's a clear picture of what it should be. Like um, a lot of people want to be really fit physically, at least in the Western culture, because our society tells that 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 sleep people are the best, but it doesn't produce a very strong internal motivation because it's just pressure and not all of us respond great in, in, in the best way to pressure. And, a strong internal motivation could be something like, I want to have great sex. I want to look great. I want my partner to enjoy my body. But this is a shameful thought for so many people because we, we are not taught to think this way. We are taught to, to care about what the society expects from us. And uh, we are not taught to be proud of having a nice body and you know having great sex because of that. But this is there and if this is the way you think you have to be honest about it otherwise there's going to always be this kind of conflict which will make finding balance more difficult than it already is there's this uh, book called man's
0: search for meaning i don't know if you've read that one where there's this the author points out that like you shouldn't ask life for like the like ask ask this question of what is the the meaning of life but life actually asks you the question of what is the meaning of your life, so it, it sort of like points out that you can build your own own uh, reason for existence, and I think it's not easy when you start your first exploration through your first job, your first startup. Uh, it qu- requires always a lot of iteration. I think <laughs> the best position you could be at is that if you can actually mold the place where you are to fit what you've discovered, that's always good. Uh, it's, yeah, really love those kind of like exploration of the motivations. This
1: resonates with me so much. Yeah. I th- when you said modding uh, the environment, I think it's also important to maintain a high level view of what else could be out there and be conscious mm-hmm. about potentially being in the wrong at the time and discovering something else down the road. Mm. And yeah, I I love the the quote about self-discovery and life asking you the question of what is the meaning of life because we are initially driven by uh, some agendas, some expectations, some social programs that tell us, hey, you have to be this and you have to be that. And if you are a high-performing individual, even though I hate that word and I I think that everyone is a high-performing individual in their own way, but if you are... um, some kind of an overachiever by the standards of the society, you soon run out of runway. You don't have uh, much else to aspire to unless you find your own motivation. Because, hey, you're 25, 30, 35, 40. Uh, you have a great career or you have, you've built a successful company. Uh, you have a great family. You have kids, whatever was on your agenda. Uh, if you have done that, what else is out there? What What's the... Next step in the, in this, what's the next standard operating procedure? And you run out of pages in the book. And it's already difficult if you are anyone, but if you are in a leadership position, you better figure it out because you have people dependent on you and all the self-searching can come at the expense of professional lives, investors' money, um, your own sanity, so yeah. the, the stakes are even higher and I think it's it's super important to think about it as, as as early as possible and really understand your drives and passions and motivation and so on and so forth
0: yeah, it's a good point
1: do you have any kind of topic that you often think about but rarely get a talk about? you know, I think I already touched on that this this is my motivation because mm. the expectations are so great and in the eyes of most people, it is so crystal clear why I'm doing what I'm doing, and uh, we we've enjoyed some extent of national fame in Estonia, and I have personally enjoyed some extent of almost celebrity status. I think domestically, which again is is, is funny because it's such a small country. It doesn't take that much to get on the on the front pages here, mm. but I've since the moment we started to gain visibility, I've always come into conflict with uh, what what most people expect of us and of myself. People would ask, "Hey, what have you bought? What, have you bought a nice car, a nice house, a nice boat?" And I'm mm. like, "No, this is not what I, I'm doing. This I'm like 25. I'm you know, my career has basically just started. I'm 33 now, about turn 34. I still think I'm I have just started. My career is in infancy. I can buy stuff later." If I am so inclined, I mean, this is not what drives me. I want to be a great things. I want to learn how to be a leader. I want to learn how to be a manager, an entrepreneur, and people would not understand. And I would talk to other business people and uh, I would tell them that I haven't been paid for seven years. And they'd be like, dude, I'm crazy. Why are you doing this then? And I would try to explain that, hey, this is, you know, this is kind of, this is an investment I'm making because I want to build something greater and I want to learn and I'm happy to endure. I mean, I, we built a game for 350 million people. I want to build a game for a billion people. How do how do you feel about that? This is not outside of reach. It's ambitious. It's even audacious. And we can, there is no guarantee we can touch that milestone ever. But uh, I'm happy to dedicate the next 10 years of my life pursuing that goal because it's a big goal. So there is nothing wrong with that if, if you ask me. And uh, it's so difficult to be on the same page when you're touching these subjects because there are preconceptions and expectations so deeply and rooted in our culture that you, feel, you begin to feel really lonely when you think about what actually drives you. And I'm, I'm really thankful. That there is a handful of people that I could find through my career that I can talk to about these subjects and be vulnerable with them and not be judged and not be seen as a weak CEO or a crazy one or a bad, you know, entrepreneur who doesn't cash out (laughs) for so long Um, so yeah, motivation is very difficult, surprisingly difficult to talk about. Yeah, it's it's
0: also one of those those areas that the media doesn't really cover. It's a lot about like fundraising, exits, IPOs. But yeah, like we need we need to do podcasts about this. So I guess it's gonna come out, <laughs> dude. I have some uh, final questions for you. What is your favorite
1: book and why? There's a bunch. Um, I think I already mentioned the hard thing about hard things by Ben Horowitz. I think because this podcast is business oriented, right? I think it's an incredibly valuable source of business wisdom from a guy who's been through a lot Hmm. and there's a whole bunch of war stories and it's written in a way that's so easy to digest with uh, like quotes from rap artists here and there, but there is a lot of wisdom compressed into surprisingly few pages. Um, I also enjoyed Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Um, It's controversial and divisive, just as Peter is controversial and divisive, but it's got some great ideas. And it's another book that you can come back to years down the road and rethink and have a completely different view of what he's actually trying to say there. I think it's yeah. really interesting from that perspective. Do you have a story that has shaped you in how you approach your work today? I think my personal relationships have shaped my approach to work a lot, and vice versa. And we are often told to separate professional lives and private lives, and it makes a lot of sense. And uh, I think it's a critical skill being able to insulate your home against all the elements uh, of um, a very demanding job but at the same time there are patterns that apply and um, dealing with the crisis in my relationship learning to be uh, less intimidating more emphatic uh, more attentive um, taking a longer-term view of what i want from my personal life from my personal development that has changed the way i work a great deal and it's uh, th- these events i don't feel comfortable talking about in detail right now because they involve the other person but mm. everyone has these stages where the old ways don't work and um, you have to find a new way of thinking about problems a new way of communicating i think this is really insightful and the same patterns can be seen in business life and management and relationship with colleagues and uh, many other elements of work life.
0: Uh,
1: hey, the final question for you, Vlad.
0: What If there's entrepreneurs out there that want to talk to you, what's the best way to
1: get in contact with you? Social networks. Wherever I am, I read all the messages. Vlad Funtikov It's my name and uh, whether it's Facebook or Twitter. I'm not very active on Twitter, but I read all the messages whenever we'll I get them. I'm genuinely happy to talk about the topics we covered today. I really, really appreciate the effort you've put into coming up with those questions. Nice. Um, I know it's hard work and uh, these subjects resonate with me deeply. And if anyone is willing to explore the subjects, I'm happy to share my experience my learnings. Uh, I'm happy to listen to other people's learnings within these topics. Thanks,
0: Vlad. This was really good. Uh, I hope you have a great day and uh, best of luck with all the projects that you have ongoing.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate having me here.
0: Thanks. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks. Take care.
0: Thanks again, Vlad, for coming on the show. If you like our content, please do hit subscribe or follow to a podcast wherever you're listening to this. And check out our website on EliteGameDevelopers.com, where we have a lot of content, blog posts, templates for startups. And we have a weekly newsletter going out with a lot of gaming startup information. See you next week, guys. Bye-bye.